Hello and welcome to this Forum for Philosophy event at the LSE. My name is Danielle Sands and I'm a fellow at the Forum. I'm going to be chairing this evening's event in which we are asking what's wrong with rights. The idea of human rights has become foundational in our legal system. Rights also bridge morality and politics and underpin our sense of what it means to be human. But where do rights come from? Can non-human beings have rights? And what and does the rights model reinforce individualism? In our discussion this evening, we will consider the advantages and limitations of the rights model and ask if we can think philosophically, ethically and politically beyond rights. Let me introduce our speakers for this evening. Adam Ettinson is Senior Lecturer in Philosophy at the University of St. Andrews. Yoriko Otomo is Lecturer in Law at SOAS University of London. And Lindsay Stonebridge is Professor of Humanities and Human Rights at the University of Birmingham. There'll be lots of time for questions at the end, so if you do have questions, please add them to the chat. Now, Lindsay, I wonder if you can start things off for us. What are human rights and where do they come from? Thank you, Danielle. Um, and it's great to be here. Um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm really very pleased to be um, talking, especially with Adam and Eureka, who are people I know and haven't had a chance to talk to before. So thank you for inviting me and thank you, everyone, for coming. So what are human rights? Well, um, all cultures and societies have and do operate on value systems, which are based on the relationships between people and between gods and animals and things. That's, that's kind of, you know, always been the case. And many religions and cultures have had a sense, a very strong sense of what's sacred or immutable, those sort of qualities that are no-touch qualities that govern how we interact together. Modern human rights, in the sense that we tend to talk about today, have several different origins. And I'll just quickly do a little map. The first one is the is, is legal history, is the legal context. And you get the beginning of something like human rights. You get the framework for human rights way back in the 17th century when, you, when we had the development of international laws on trade and war. So rights kind of, rights and war have a very close history um, um, together as in and indeed with um, capitalism and trade. So from the 17th century on, you've got these sort of frameworks which are governing how, how nation states can behave or not nation, how, how different sovereign entities can behave in relationship to one another whilst guaranteeing sovereignty. So that's important because if you didn't have that sense of laws operating internationally, the sense of human rights as being a sort of extra territorial, extra sovereign place um, would not be in place. But later on, you, so you have at the same time the development of, of European Enlightenment thinking about the individual. Crucially in this story is Immanuel Kant and his concepts around human dignity. And I'm really interested to hear Adam on this as well, because Adam, I know you've done some really interesting work on the concept of dignity recently. So you know, Kant's idea that there was something intrinsically about human dignity that we had to respect, something about not treating each other as a means to an end, just of course, as people were, we're talking about the oceans of colonialism here as well, just as that was happening. And you had very growing ideas about natural rights, about rights that belonged to men, not just to sovereigns, not just to kings, but to, and it was mainly white men. Now, this all sounds very promising, and a lot of those ideas filter in to our concepts of rights today. 
But it's also crucial to note where the history, uh, uh, history invites are interacting and wrapping themselves around each other. A lot of ideas around natural rights and the sentiment that you should be respectful of other people's dignity, respectful of other people's rights, moral sentiments developed in response to and out of the origins of capitalism, which can be both a good thing and a bad thing, and they actually tend to move between one another. So when Adam Smith writes about moral sentiments, he's actually saying, if you're going to have a system which is based on markets and competition, you're going to have to have something to stop people ripping each other apart, I obviously predicted. And one of the answers to this was the development of our ideas of sympathy and moral sentiment. As I, as I always say to my students, you know, the original virtue signalers were 18th century capitalists. Um, they, were, they were the first ones to signal their virtue as a way of saying, I am a good man. This is, you know, this is, this is my, this is my, my, my virtue. Um, at a time when market forces and those very good men um, could also be, of course, slave owners. So that's, that's one thing to know. But the other bit of that story is the way that human rights have always been linked to insurgent or revolutionary moments with self-determination, with ideas about democracy, with challenges to power. And that side of the story really comes into being with the French Revolution and with the American Revolution. So those, those are sort of the sort of prehistory, the, the prehistory of now coordinates. And what you see is those things, those, those sort of ideas about dignity, self-determination, democracy, um, the, the right to be heard being carried over into what I call the second age of rights, which came after World War II. I, after, you know, imperialism, capitalism, and all the ideas about natural dignity and the Great Enlightenment Project fell apart, were resuscitated in that second great moment of rights, which came after World War II with the United Nations Declaration on Human Rights. So that's a very rapid and broad kind of set of coordinates for, 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 for what the kind of ideas and histories that are percolating when we talk about rights now. Thanks, Lindsay. That was a really useful sort of potted history, I think, for us. Um, Yoriko, Adam, do you want to add anything into that history before we move on? Sure. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you, Lindsay. I thought that that was a, a fascinating start. And I, I like the starting distinction that Lindsay made between the legal history of rights and the moral history of rights. So I was thinking just, you know, one of the questions we were we were meant to ponder is, you know, how long have rights been around? Where do they come from? Uh, and I think if we're talking about the legal history of rights, we need to be thinking about the sorts of things that um, Lindsay w- was talking about. But if we think of rights simply as a moral concept, as a as an idea of being owed certain things, whether whether you know these are possessions, whether these are freedoms, whether these are displays of respect or deference, that it seems to me must be a very old thing. So I I, I can only imagine that that's been around for a very long time. Like. As, as soon as human beings had political structures, you'd have met, as soon as some people were given, you know, special entitlements to issue orders or to receive benefits uh, or to make decisions, you already have the germ of, of a right there, the idea that certain individuals are owed certain things uh, from others. Uh, once you have agriculture, you know, you have a reason for people to sort of want to have exclusive access uh, to, to the fruits of their labors, the work that they put into certain tracts of land. And so you'd have the germ of a situation where you might have claims to that to that land. And of course, that's going to go back very far into into human history. So I just think if we're talking about the moral history of rights, 
we're probably reaching well back beyond uh, recorded history, uh, I, I would think. So that, that's just a small, small addendum I would, I would add to, to Lindsay's comments. Uh, yeah, and I guess to add to that too, when we're talking about the history of human rights, I think it's the history of humanism itself is kind of inextricable, um, inextricably linked with that. And so, you know, the long, the, the long history of humanism is the question of what, what a human is, the conflict between human and nature, man and man, existence and being, individual and species. And, and while we think of it as a timeless or universal concept, it's a historical and ideological myth that reaches its zenith in the, in the late 19th century, which Lindsay alludes to. And so to add to, to Lindsay's uh, story about um, how it emerges, how these, this idea of human rights emerges with capitalism and, and really the, the, the great colonial projects, what we have is the idea of humanness as being consolidated in Western Europe at a time of tremendous territorial and existential upheaval in the mid 17th century. And, and it emerges as governmental rhetoric. So if we're thinking about humanism and, and, and in relation to governance, it emerges as governmental rhetoric to reassure populations that the sovereign state is the political authority empowered to rule on the basis that humans are human as opposed to the church, you know, which rules on the basis that humans are subject to uh, subjects of God. So that's really um, interesting uh, to start with when we start thinking, talking, you know, we'll, we'll talk a bit later about uh, animal, animal rights. Um, and so, so I guess the, the story of humanism is not completely illustrious. And, and in fact, there's a, a scholar called Tony Davis who calls it empire humanism. He says it's an ideology that tracks the modern age and, and it's held in thrall to these ideas of whiteness and masculinity as its reference points, particularly in relation to, to governing, yeah? so, so for, its, for its authority. Um, and, and so it's not, it's not uh, completely straightforward. Maybe, maybe I'll stop there. Thanks, you're okay. I mean, I think that's one of the things that, that's come out in, the, in what you're saying and what Lindsay was saying is that actually, um, you know, this is a very complex set of histories um, and we think that human rights are on the surface something good generally, um, but they seem to have emerged from these very complex sets of histories and be attached to all sorts of complex desires and impulses, which are not always good. Um, I suppose, can we, you know, can we detach human rights as a good thing from those histories or do those histories and those, the complexities of those histories and that entanglement with the problematic history of humanism always keep emerging in these discourses of human rights? Yoriko? Yeah, so uh, I don't know. So after World War II, you have the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that declares slavery as being a violation of human rights. And, and yet you also have the, the Jewish Holocaust that was carried out shortly before that as an ode, really, to a very narrow form of humanism. So certainly, you know, rights discourse has historically been used at times to service nationalistic and even fascistic policy. 
And it's really difficult to separate this out from an essentialist idea of legal rights, because when we're talking about legal rights, what, what is that if not discourse as well? Um, it's possible, of course, to refer to examples where rights are a kind of rallying cry for good causes. So there's the woman's vote, the abolition of slavery, decolonization, and so on. But when we're, we're using, say, the, the master's tools to dismantle the master's house, I find that um, we keep ending up in this kind of slippery mess when we try to expand rights claims to more humans and, and non-humans. Um, which I can say more about that later. But I'm sure Lindsay, uh, has, you know, who's done so much work on this, has, has a lot to say as well. Yeah, no, it's a great question, Danielle, but I think it's a, it's a very, it's a sort of question academics ask themselves, isn't it? So if we could just disentangle the history from the practice of politics, wouldn't it be great? Um, and um, it would, but unfortunately, um, <laughs> um, yeah. The, the philosopher kings do not rule. Um, and so I think it, you know, I think you have to live with the ambivalence of that history. And I kind of want to defend rights at this point. I mean, in terms of the legal framework that, that, that is there, because they have done, they have given, if you look at something like, um, you know, the UDHR, but also more importantly, the Human Rights Commission did, you know, it did allow, um, especially sort of, you know, post-Bandung, um, emerging um, post-colonial countries to like put apartheid out put as, 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 a, as a crime against humanity. I mean, and, and that was really helpful. <laughs> so I think, you know, I, 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 and I also think rights, people will rally to rights um, in a way that they're not going to write, they're not going to rally around ideologies. Um, and at certain points, um, that's proved, um, yeah, and you're quite right, at certain points it's proved disastrous, but at other points it's proved um, um, profitable. Um, and, and, you know, another type of politics has emerged. So I kind of want to keep, you know, I keep, I, I mean, I think there is a kind of version of rights which is very liberal, there's a version of rights which is very conservative, there's a ver version of rights which just has you know, got its history stuck all over it. But there's also um, an insurgent version of rights, which I think is, 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 is kind of in the structure of rights history itself. So whilst in some ways, you know, we might want to wash our hands, um, I, I want to keep the place open for that insurgency. Thanks, Lindsay. Adam, do you want to come in and perhaps also defend rights, I suspect? Yeah, well, I, th I think that's I, I I'm like Lindsay. I think an, an optimist about rights. I think I think a lot depends on how we cash out um, our understanding of what rights we have, how we use rights. I think these are these are the the important things. And and I'm I'm an optimistic I'm an optimist that we can uh, sort of rescue rights from from their problematic history at times. Um, so. Uh, in terms of you know a broader defense, I think I'll, I know we're, we're supposed to come to that a little bit later in the in the panel discussion. So maybe I'll just just say that for now. Great. I mean, I wonder whether we could think a bit more about who has rights and where they come from. So we've talked about the history a little bit, but are rights something we're born with? Are rights something that we receive by being uh, members of certain communities? Can, can you maybe come back to, to that a little bit, Adam? 
Sure. Yeah. Well, it, it all depends on, on how we define um, human rights. So, I mean, usually we think of human rights as a subset of, of the larger class of rights. So, so we, might, we might have certain special rights that we acquire through uh, membership in a certain community or through, or through certain achievements, uh, like the president of the United States has a special right to veto Congress. Uh, that's not a right um, most people have, of course, anyone no one but the president can have that right. So we wouldn't want to call that a human right. Um, but human rights are those rights, as I understand it, that all human beings have. And also that all human beings have in some naturalistic sense that it just comes prepackaged with their being human. Um, so, so that's how uh, I, I would sort of urge us to think of, of human rights. Now, it's difficult to, to sort of, so we, we might say, okay, that's how... If you're disposed to think of human rights in that way, fine. And you might say, okay, where do they come from, right? Why, why do human beings just have these uh, these sort of inborn um, entitlements? And I think that's a very difficult question to answer. And that any answer you give is probably going to be less satisfying than this sort of profound conviction that we have that people do have um, these rights uh, universally. So. And of course, you know, many, many answers have been given. We might look at species membership as somehow a rights granting and uh, a rights granting feature of human beings or the capacity for reason, as, as Lindsay mentioned, uh, Kant was, was uh, very much um, impressed by our capacity for reason. And that's where our dignity came from and, and they're from our rights. It may be our basic needs that, um, you know, somehow grant us these rights, our, our, our interests in certain things. All of these answers have different problems uh, with them. And, and I think it's sort of important to sort of search for an answer, but I'm, I'm more certain that we have rights than I am in any of any answer about why, why we do. Uh, and, and I think that that's something that relaxes me. I don't, I don't feel as worried about, uh, about the absence of, of some kind of foundational answer uh, there. So, I mean, that, that's my two cents uh, as, a, as a conceptual orientation here. Lindsay, perhaps we could come back to you. Yeah, no, I was just dwelling on um, Adam's really lovely formulation, which is, you know, I'm more sure, I'm more certain that we have human rights than I am about the accounts of why we have human rights, which I thought was um, brilliant because, it, I mean, it does sort of speak to that um, moment where that there, there, there is a sense and it's usually coming, you know, it usually comes from their deprivation. I can remember when, when, you know, years ago when I was a Twitter, um, in, in Twitter kindergarten and didn't know what I was doing, putting something about critical about human rights. And I got, um, I didn't get trolled at the opposite of what a, a troll, a fairy said, how dare you say there are no human rights? And there I looked at this person and he really, this person really went for me. And, um, yeah, it, it, it came from a context where he was really campaigning in a structure where he didn't think there was something like human rights. And it didn't behold me to say, oh, actually, what you're talking about there is legal or political rights. Actually, I think you're talking about economic rights, um, because his sense, his very strong sense was that something was being withheld from him. But I do think we do go into a problem here, which is just, you know, Adam's quite right. Um, and I think this is touches on the um, histories of humanism that Eureka has, has talked about as well is if you kind of bracket out human rights and say, well, there are other rights like, that might be more important, like political rights, national rights, civic rights, all those things don't, in the end, give protection. So we really are um, sort of you know, 
history, history has shown that, you know, being, being, a, being a member of a nation state means nothing if you can be decitizenized. Um, you know, political rights mean nothing um, if you can be imprisoned um, for your, 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 your political beliefs. And I always go back here to Hannah Arendt's very enigmatic and, and irritatingly undeveloped concept of the right to have rights. Um, and it's important to remember the context she came out of, which she thought about this, which was um, she was writing, she came, she wrote in 49, first of all, about the, the right to have rights. When she was writing Origins of Totalitarianism, she was, of course, a stateless person. And she was very critical of, um, she was very critical of human rights, actually. She was very critical of the natural rights um, tradition. Not least because she actually says, you know, you know, it's quite obvious, um, as she was writing in the 40s, that she said the world found nothing sacred in the abstract nakedness of being human. So the world found nothing sacred in the abstract nakedness of being humanism. So that kind of natural rights based humanism was no protection. Um, at all. And she started her analysis with the analysis of stateless people to say, well, well if you can be um, rendered stateless, if the sovereign state is so important for guaranteeing your rights, then, you, then you're rightless, you have nothing. Um, and she, to me, she pointed out that the response to that in the post-war period, as Eureka is saying, was yes, of course, there was lots of legislation, lots of very fine ideas about human rights, but most people who were rightless at the time were not calling for human rights, they were calling for something like a nation state. And political rights. So uh, they were not saying, where are my human rights? They were saying, you know, where am I going to live? Where can I have civil rights? Where can I have political rights? But if you look at what Arendt says, she says the right to have rights is the right to just speak and appear. And she doesn't say it's the right to have national rights, although you could think she's saying that. She doesn't actually say it's the right to have political rights, although you could assume she's saying that too. Quite often we say she, she's talking about the right to appear in a political community, which is, she kind of is, but she's not, she, never, she doesn't really use the word democracy either. She's not talking about you know, representative right. She's actually talking more very loosely about the principle of equal liberty, where people have the right to speech and to engage with what it is that we are bestowing upon one another when we call, when we talk about the right to have rights. So Etienne Balabar, who's written, the uh, um, philosopher, Marxist philosopher, has written beautifully about this aspect of Lawrence's work, will say that there is a kind of view, yes, there's an anthropology, you know, she's, 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 she's been anthropological. The right to speak is the right for us to describe or uh, you know, give one another a sense of the humanness to which we are then giving rights. Because what that humanness might be has to be, um, something that, that that comes out of relationships between people, rather the isolated um, um, sort of what, you know, individualists who are claiming their rights based on the on based on prior rights around property or wealth wealth claims. So I do think you know yes, I want to keep human rights, um, but not unproblematically. But always be aware that we're, since we're in that space, we have to invent other ways of thinking about how we how 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 politically and ethically we live together, which might not be the nation state and might not be political forms that we currently inhabit or might not even be you know, anthropological forms that we currently inhabit. Thanks, Lindsay. Yoriko, you're nodding. Do you want to come in there? Oh, well, just to just to agree with Lindsay that, you know, it's, it's just lovely to think of alternative ways of being in community together and, and you know, to be supportive and so on. And these are these are 
just wonderful sentiments with which I wholeheartedly agree. Um, I, I think it's still quite problematic to think about it in terms of the language of human rights and not just the language, but the legal structures of human rights, which is what essentially you're referring to when, you, when well, I think as a, as a legal scholar, you know, human rights refers to this kind of complex web of national and international laws and very specific procedural claims often that are made in the name of human rights. And so, um, and, and that comes um, along with with all of its, it, it necessarily, I think, drags along its historical problems with it. Um, you know, at its heart, the idea of, of human rights is a kind of magic circle. Adam, you were saying, well, I don't, you know, I can't, I can't say for sure whether we've got them, but we do have them. I believe we have them. And it's that leap of faith that you're talking about that we we need to make in order to overcome some of this kind of existential crisis of being in a world without God. Um, and we've been sitting in this crisis for the past century, at least as a global community, um, or, or at least in the global north. Um, and it's it's um, very, very tricky to, to, to talk about these things too in a in a in a in a globalized world where there are many now competing um, discourses, religious, ethical, and so on, very dramatically different from the the sort of uh, language of international law that we're familiar with in the post-war period. That's really that's really crafted by the allies, the allied states. Um, and so I do think, Lindsay, there are different ways of being and and ways of flourishing that we have to keep working on um, uh, in, in, you know, in, for the good of the public to, to keep trying to imagine um, and extend ourselves to, to imagine ways of governing ourselves to be. But nonetheless, um, I'm not sure that human rights is 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 the best way forward in the long term. And that's what, what I'd have to say about about the language of animal rights as well, you know, it's 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 so useful in terms of rallying, being a rallying cry for people and for communities. Um, but there must be other ways of doing it because there are so many limitations. When you start to look at the granular detail of what it means to make those claims themselves, and and it's it's so much more about um, who isn't who isn't able to make those claims. It's such an exclusionary process, more often than not, when the people who 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 uh, most need to claim those rights are often the ones who are least able to get them. Thanks, Yoriko. I mean, I think we've already begun to look about look at this sort of difficult, problematic history of, of rights, and you're, you're also now touching on this issue that um, they can be very exclusionary. Um, Adam, I wonder if you can say a bit more about, you know, what's wrong with rights and why they given that they have such laudable aims, why they've got such a, a bad reputation in, in lots of different kinds of circles. Yeah, I'm going to unmute myself. Yeah, yes, absolutely. So, yeah, it's an interesting title that we have for, for the panel uh, discussion today. What's wrong with rights? So it suggests that there's some uncertainty about what it is exactly that is wrong with rights, but no uncertainty at all that there is something wrong uh, with <laughs> with rights. And so I just want to you know, dispute that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I just want to confess that I'm I'm a little bit less certain that there that there is something wrong with rights as such. 
uh, you know, technically understood um, and abstractly understood, right? So apart, apart from, from various histories. Um, so I, I think if, if you think about them abstractly, right, seem, they seem to me to be a necessary component of any sane morality of, or system of law. So without rights, uh, we couldn't claim to be owed uh, certain things as a matter of strict urgency, right? Even when it might be inconvenient, even when it might be disadvantageous uh, for, for others. So for instance, we wouldn't be able to claim uh, an indissoluble human right not to be tortured, even in cases, horrific cases where public fury at an offender uh, might call for that sort of thing. Uh, we wouldn't be able to claim uh, an indispensable, sorry, indissoluble right to housing, healthcare, uh, basic subsistence, even when the state uh, or, or other agencies find such things expensive or inconvenient. Uh, we wouldn't be able to claim a basic right to vote or, or run for office, regardless of whether or not uh, this would in some sense contribute to the collective good. Um, so like having a right to something is like having a kind of shield. Uh, it's like a way of brushing aside concerns about the inefficiency, cost, or collective inconvenience of having that thing whether it's a freedom, whether it's a good, whether it's some kind of service. And so understood in that way, I think rights are useful for individuals. Uh, they're useful for minorities. They're useful for whole peoples uh, on the international stage. Um, they're a very useful tool for the powerless in the face of the powerful. And so it's hard, it's hard not to see the appeal of, of rights language uh, and rights discourse in that, in that sense, I think. Um, and that's true, so far as I can tell, no matter what your political ideology is. So it's, I think it's tempting for any ideology to sort of use or co-opt the language of rights because, because it's an appealing uh, concept and a powerful concept. So, of course, you know, the political right will use the language of rights to ensure the supremacy of the free market, championing some kind of absolute uh, unqualified right to free exchange. Um, but also... You know, the left makes use of the language of rights, even though Marx himself was, was critical of rights discourse, labor rights, uh, rights to unionize, rights to welfare, uh, rights to unemployment protection, unemployment insurance, rights to good working conditions, to paid leave, uh, universal basic income. You know, many of those rights are in the Universal Declaration, as Lindsay was talking about before. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's great to, and we have to think critically about rights, especially given their dominance. So, so when, when, when a language is so dominant, you have to be suspicious of it and you have to, uh, to criticize it and be, and be wary and, and, and be critical. But I'm not so sure that the problem here, if there is a problem, and of course there are problems, I'm not, sure, I'm not so sure that the problem is with rights themselves. Um, so I think the problems emerge with how we use rights, how we use rights discourse. So one problem and you know we could we could we could go on and on, uh, but let, let me just mention one. Uh, there is a problem with making every moral, political, and legal issue an issue of rights. Uh, so so just take morality uh, for instance. So living morally, engaging in moral life is a very complex, uh, nuanced affair. There are many components to it, um, and th there's a lot of our moral life that is simply not covered or captured by the language of rights. So think about. Um, Virtues, moral virtues, like I want to be a charitable, charitable person, I want to be a generous person, a kind person, someone who acts with integrity, uh, loyalty, 
part of that involves respecting the rights of others, but you can't reduce the moral virtues entirely to the task of respecting uh, rights. No one has a right that I be kind or, or generous or nice, friendly uh, to them, but those are crucial parts of, of morality and, and of being moral. Much of doing well by others, of, of being moral, involves going above and beyond duty, uh, or what's stri strictly speaking owed to other people as a matter of right. So think of being a good neighbor. Um, it's not just a matter of like respecting the fence between, <laughs> or the barrier, you know, between, or the wall, you know, between you and your neighbor, but of going out of your way to be considerate uh, to your neighbor. Maybe calling, you know, if a child falls ill, or writing a message, or maybe going well above and beyond baking a cake for your neighbor. These are the things that, that you know, uh, that are at issue there. So, and when you hear appeals to rights, that's usually a sign that relations have degraded, you know, in some way to some kind of base level. So I think you lose a lot of the texture and interest of our moral lives just to focus on morality if you make everything about respecting rights. And sometimes there are great causes, you know, huge moral and political causes like like we're facing climate change, um, for instance. Some of these causes might not um, it might not be well-framed in terms of the language of rights. So if you think of the case of climate change, we might ask, you know, who is it that has a right against um, indifference to, to climate change? Certainly young people, uh, future generations, you would think, but of course they don't exist. Why not just think of this as you know, avoiding of, the avoidance of climate change, the prevention of climate change is an absolutely imperative goal that we have to pursue uh, as human beings rather than anyone's right uh, per se. And a, a goal can be just as urgent uh, as any right. So I think at best, you know, rights are, are a component of morality, they're a component of law, uh, maybe even a small one, um, some instances. So that, that's, that's one thing. Don't make everything about rights. Another thing to watch out for, you know, is, of course, um, using rights discourse in unhelpful ways. So it might be that you claim implausible rights. Uh, so the idea that we have a limitless right to, to free exchange and, and, and to engage in the market and no other rights or duties to others seems to me highly implausible and outrageous. Um, can't claim freedom from taxation or renege on our, on our duties to other co-citizens, other human beings when they need help. So that's one problem, right? Making sure we correctly identify the rights that we have. Another issue might be using human rights discourse in ambiguous ways, uh, not clearly defining uh, the, the sort of practical implications of claiming certain rights. So it is an issue that in human rights discourse, we don't really know who is meant to step in when a state is either unwilling or unable to fulfill the rights of its own citizens. It's just a deep ambiguity in human rights practice. And that's, that's a problem. There's a, there's a lacuna in, in human rights discourse that needs to be remedied uh, for us to understand what, what its practical implications are. That's a problem, but it's not a problem as I see it with rights as such. Um, it's a problem with the way rights are used by people, whether it's due to overexcitement or, or enthusiasm or inattention or ideological bias or, or, other, or other things. So when we, when we criticize rights, I think we need to start first by recognizing how critical in some sense rights are to our self-understanding, to, to our moral and political lives uh, together, no matter what our political ideology is. 
And also to keep in mind the likelihood that what we're really concerned about is how people are using the idea of rights uh, in, in, their, in their lives and, and in their speech, uh, rather than the concept of, of rights itself. So is there anything wrong with rights? You know, is, is another way of posing uh, the question that we have to, or one question that we could ask today. So just to summarize that, Adam, it seems you're saying this, it's not rights that are the problem, it's A, sort of misuses of rights and B, sort of the reduction of basically all moral and political questions to questions of rights. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, roughly, yeah. And, and other mistakes we might make, just sort of misidentifying the rights that we have. Sure, sure, thank you. Um, I wonder if I could bring in uh, Lindsay there. Do you agree with those two claims? Yeah, no, I thought that was fascinating, Adam. I just, I just did want to go back to um, the legal framework, just um, and, and the, to question the extent to which it is sort of historically can, contaminated, which it is. Um, but also, I think some of what Adam's talking about also comes through in that history. And the one that um, is, is sort of really playing loudly in my mind at the moment is um, 1951. Refugee Convention, which of course is its, it's anniversary, and there have been lots of good faith and bad faith um, 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 you know, accounts of the 51 Convention that have come out of that, um, not least a questioning of how it's working now. And in some ways, you could say, well, it's not working very, very well at all. I mean, if you look at, you know, the article on non reformal, you are not supposed to send people back. It's very, very clear. <laughs> it's, you know, it couldn't be clearer on this. Um, how the EU, for example, is using its lawyers to work out precisely how to do that by using the law, by precisely using the terms that were given. Um, so that would be a classic case that Eureka, I think, what you're talking about is like, you know, yeah, but look. But if you go back and, you know, when I was doing some work on the um, um, 51 Convention a few years ago, go back into the Chapel Preparatoire, which is the archive which records all the arguments everyone had. And as a historian, I just know this is catnip to me. Um, about you know all the arguments sort of behind the um, each article, and as a literary historian, it's even more like catnip because you get a real sense of people's histories and characters and fights. Um, and you know, on normally for more, it was the, the the rear arc action against that was um, was the British um, surprise surprise with Saudi Arabia surprise surprise who you know so we can't just. You know, must be able to put people back. I mean, what if they're not very nice? I mean, this is literally what the British delegates said. You know, what if we don't want them? <laughs> and, you know, the action against that came from um, a couple of people who, who, who had been refooled, had been pushed back um, during the war and had lost people. And there was an absolute, it goes back to something Adam said earlier, is that that's, you're not going to have it. This is wrong. And it's wrong out of, you know, our experience, history. There's a moral line here. And I think those two, you know, the kind of, you know, regressive inter in instrumentalism of human rights law, of course, inhibits. But there's this other thing that, that, that you, call it, you can call it rage, you can call it hope, you can call it um, other kind of human virtues that just percolate through. And for that, I think it's, it, it's fascinating and necessary. Um, I, I think, Adam, you're absolutely right. And I think the, the, the left and not just the left, but people want to defend human rights being really bad on um, not taking seriously why it is other people don't like rights, human rights. Um, we just, you know, it, it's the, the other people don't like human rights because they're horrible and cruel. Other people don't like human rights because they're not nice people, which is nothing more you know, guaranteed to irritate people who are already suspicious of human rights is to be told that you don't, you don't like them and you're suspicious of them because you're horrible. 
Um, and I think there is something, there's, there's a kind of um, overreach, there's legalism, um, all of which, you know, raise you know, legitimate questions about um, um, freedom and jurisdiction that, that, that people are kicking back. But I think the other thing, and I think um, well, um, Eureka is right on this as well, what, is, what, what, what has to be put in play here is um, a sense of post-colonial history, is the bleed out into sense that, you know, human rights are a version of humanitarianism and they're things that you give people who are less fortunate than yourselves. And I don't think, you know, in some, you know and, and, and that gets kind of caught up in historical narratives about deservingness and non-deservingness. So that's that kind of colonial history of humanitarianism, I think, is also at play there. But the other thing I, I want to put on the table is that question of what it would mean to be um, have a, you know, a proper critical response to rights. And I think Adam is, is, is doing some really exciting work here, which just doesn't involve either saying it's all rubbish and contaminated and awful, or it's all great and you're all horrible, um, or you know, but but moves into that. And I, and I think Adam's quite right. Well, some, some of that's going to be a holding back on human rights, and particularly a holding back on the kind of discourse that you know, human rights um, you know, is 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 the new virtue signalling in a world which is you know, in a neoliberal world, in which inequalities are extreme. There's no accident. That, you know, those discourses around moral sentiment, virtue and human rights tend to appear in historical moments when, you know, that the exact opposite is what, what is actually happening. I'd like to bring Yoriko back in at, at this point and come back to this idea of the exclusionary nature of rights. And um, a point that Adam made about rights being a useful tool for the powerless. I'd like to know if you agree, Yoriko, or, or maybe you want to sort of add something to that. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, the question that, that that keeps coming to mind is is who who gets to say what these human rights are? Um, and Adam, you were talking about the different kinds of of things that we might like to be rights but aren't. Um, but some of us might like to be rights but aren't. <laughs> and and it's such a very very big world out there that we're only really now coming to grips with with the internet, you know, with the, this sort of increased communication. And I think uh, there are so many rich cultures that have other discourses about things that like rights, obligate, you know, obligation, family obligation, state obligation, community obligation, um, that there are so many very different, dramatically different ways of, 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 um, passing that relationship between people or between humans and nature that I think it would be worthwhile opening up to when doing this kind of work of thinking through what to retain of, of human rights, you know, post-1945 post to today. Um, yeah, that's, that's, and, and, but, Human so human rights, the language of legal rights as it stands today, I think is undoubtedly, it causes as much grief to those excluded as it does give hope. So, you, you know, when you're in refugee camps or, or other places where people are desperate, um, they that sort of tremendous sense of disappointment they might feel from having assumed that they have rights and then finding out that, they don't, even when they're middle class, even when they had a good home and a life and a state. 
suddenly they don't. And of course, rights, you know, disappears into the, the ether. Mm-hmm. I think that does a tremendous lot of harm to this sense of community, global community. Um, so we must do something about that. One mm-hmm. must think, think a way through that. You, you reminded me, Anika, um, of um, um, Kafka's story, The Castle, um, and it's Rent again who points this out, but the castle is, uh, those of you who know the story, is a story of a guy who rocks up at the village of a castle, thinking he's got an offer of work, thinking that someone said, oh, I'll have a visa, <laughs> um, come and drive our lorry, actually, it was, you know, come, come and measure our land, so there's territory in it as well. And it should be scuffed and it's like, what? What? <laughs> and everything is all about bureaucracy and admin and pushing him out and actually, you know, you know saying you were not invited. And Arendt makes the point, and she, she writes about this um, in, in 1944, 40, I think it is, that uh, um, what, 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 what K car does in the castle is behave as if universal human rights do exist. And that's why he's so annoying to everyone in the village, because he just refuses. He just he is actually, you know, very much like, you know, the figure of certainly the figure of the migrant, but also the figure of the refugee is just like, well, I'm here and I'm just going to keep on behaving and in this totally reasonable way. I'm going to be a man of goodwill and I'm going to assume that you are also men of goodwill. And that's what's so interminable about the story because it can't move <laughs> from, from that position. So, so your, your, your point um, really reminded me of that. But it's also, I think what I like about Arendt's reading of that is like, it's there as a kind of, it's there as a negative idea in that context, in a, in a society that plays lip service to human rights, but actually has whole systems of bureaucracy and border control and power, which is set up to do it. And I really think that tension is there in contemporary camps um, as it is in, in Kafka. They're not the same, um, but it, they're speaking to something very, very similar. Yeah, yeah well, I think it's a, it's a really interesting example. I don't know um, so much about the, the case that you were, you were mentioning, but this idea of hope and disappointment, and as Lindsay mentioned, sort of paying lip service, sort of understanding as a refugee that, you know, uh, the powers that be are only paying lip service to the language of human rights rather than actually complying with it and giving me the rights that I'm that I'm supposed to have. I mean, that points to another problem here, which I mean, maybe the biggest and the most difficult for for human rights practitioners, which is the lack of compliance uh, with human rights. So maybe what we <laughs> really want, rather than getting rid of human rights, is to to make states more compliant with them. Uh, and actually, you know, to cease paying lip service to human rights, but to really put uh, uh, to really put their will behind them. Um, I mean, that, that's just one one other way of reacting to that to that kind of case. But again, I don't know enough about the details to say whether that that makes sense as a way of as a way of reading it. Um, I did. I was just thinking about uh, also, Lindsay. Uh, you mentioned you know, the importance of holding back, which I think is a good way of putting it. You're not making everything about uh, human rights, not making everything, um, not thinking of human rights as only workable within the medium of law, for instance. Uh, holding back sometimes, I think, is, is going to be important. But I think the call, like what I'm sensing from, from Eureka and Lindsay is also just a, 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 a desire for, for reimagining things, so opening up our minds to as to what human rights can be, um, uh, you mentioned Lindsay addressing inequality, uh, and and it's true that human rights 
uh, don't do much to address gaping uh, inequalities, uh, global inequalities uh, in wealth. The language is structured so that we're meant to bring up, you know, the worst off to a certain level of adequate well-being, but there's nothing in human rights to prevent massive uh, inequalities in wealth uh, across the global population. And so one response to that is to think, and, you know, I'm thinking of Samuel Moyne here, is to think, well, this is a, a fundamental inadequacy of, of, of human rights. Another response is to think, and, you know, perhaps we need to move beyond. Another response is to say, no, let's, let's reimagine human rights and, and make them. This is a tool that we've created. You know, we can, we can create it and improve it and, and make it meet uh, the problems that, that we want to solve. Let's change and reimagine human rights so that it can address uh, these, these, deep, these deep problems. That would be another response that we could take. I'd, I'd add to that. I mean, the other you know, um, reason why I think human rights still exists is because um, the powerful are still dumping on the powerless. Um, and it, you know, that, so it, we could, you know, we could reimagine something else, maybe. I mean, but, but, but as soon as we start to say that, once you start to say reimagining something else, you always think, well, we've tried that before, and that, that ended up with really bad for human rights in, in quite a few contexts. So sometimes it's best if you just stop imagining how we want um, society to behave and find something else. Um, but, you know, one of the, the baselines on why we still, I think, have human rights and why people will use that discourse. Um, and lawyers, you know, if you look at um, refugee lawyers um, um, who um, are, are not cynical in the way that um, home office and government lawyers might or might not be, they might not be too, but are using that law in order to sort of like, like change the terms of the encounter between either the humanitarian and, uh, and the person in distress or or borders, or the law of the sea, or the ethics of recognition. And they're doing that because they've got a toolkit um, and to do it. One of the reasons they keep on doing it is because people, you know, keep on, as I said, you know, oppression keeps on happening. And so I mean, it's not that human rights are the answer to that, um, but having you know, a, a notional idea, however um, fictional or, or tenuous or vulnerable, that and we think there might be, we might have to have, have some rules of the game here. Um, um, I think that that's, I mean, that we're, we're as stuck with that as we are with Adam's sense with, you know, I'm certain we have human rights. I'm certain we have human rights because I'm certain we have something like evil too. I'd like to move us on to thinking about the, the value of rights as a way of thinking ethically about non-humans. So Yoriko, perhaps you could talk to us a little bit about animal rights and whether that's the best mode for thinking about sort of ethical relations with, with the non-human. Yes, you probably know what <laughs> you can guess what I'm going to say already, but let me let me talk about my favorite topic for a little bit. So, so at the turn of the millennium, uh, there was an abandonment by mainstream philosophical scholarship of the idea that consciousness is unique to humans, and and so with the shift uh, in the philosophy of consciousness emerged these two different approaches to legislating the animal. Um, there's there's the welfare approach. Um, and, and then also less mainstream, a rights-based approach that sees animals as sentient beings who should be protected through designated legal rights. This isn't entirely new because um, there is a, a really fascinating long history of animals um, having legal rights because they're recognized as legal people and they have standing in court and so on. Um, uh, this is in the Middle Ages, but um, post the modern age, we have these two two different approaches to legislating animal life, non-human life, and that's welfare and rights. Now, um, so, sorry. 
So th this this introduction uh, of awareness about animals needing protection of sorts achieved much of what first and second wave feminism and queer theory and race studies and human rights discourse uh, have achieved. And that's some contestation of the hierarchies of violence that would otherwise operate unquestioned. And this is what Adam and Lindsay are saying, you know, is like, you know, is, is one of the real value of, 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 of keeping this, this idea of human rights in play. Now, welfare and, and rights approaches to legislating the, the animal, um, however, are based on this humanist ethical theory, which is haunted by deep anthropocentrism. And rights approaches have perpetuated an identity politics that at best leads to an endless exercise in line drawing um, with, for example, great apes granted, being granted more rights than, say, rabbits who receive more mention in laws than, than worms and, and so on. It's problematic because most animals are, are and they're always have been un unknown to modern science. So this is the the laws that we have only take into account animals that are real. You know, their their probable existence is calculated by statistical method. So of the real animals, both known and unknown, the matter of scale and capacity and visibility is usually conveniently overlooked in laws that impact animals. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example of a, of an, a, a wonderful animal, the tardigrade. So the tardigrade is, is a microscopic animal. It's also known as a water bear or, or moss piglet that's been around for 520 million years. And it has a phylum of 1,250 different species. And some of these species can survive temperatures from one degree warmer than absolute zero to minus 272 degrees. Celsius. Uh, other tardigrades can endure powerful radiation. Uh, and in 2007, the space agency, the European Space Agency, sent 3,000 of these animals into low Earth orbit and space, and they survived for 12 days on the outside of the space capsule. They can live in water, on land, and survive uh, crushing pressures. And without water, they create a protein to create, they use a protein to create a rigid internal skeleton and they freeze their own cells and they can be rehydrated back to life 30 years later in this state. Um, and physicists postulate that tardigrades could survive the 4.37 light year trip to Alpha Centauri. And yet that animal doesn't come close to being acknowledged in animal laws or animal rights laws. Um, because they're neither food nor pests nor trophy, which are our key concerns as humans. And if they were recorded rights, I mean, what, what would happen then? So the animal really, as it appears in, in laws as, as we currently have them, is almost invisible. If we're to try and understand how non-human animals are portrayed in law today, we can see that they, they play these handful of very just symbolic roles, they're beast or vermin or interloper or, or sovereign even. Um, and as beasts, they're, they're cast as meat for food or for work. We use the term beastliness to talk about criminals or sexually deviant humans. Uh, we talk about vermin that describes animals that seek to profit from the, you know, that seek to, to profit themselves from the fruits of human labor. Uh, and I talked about sovereign power. So some animals have this kind of symbolic 
capital associated with sovereign power because they're hunting trophies and and those kinds of creatures, bears, um, tigers and so on, tend to uh, become the focus of of being protected or endangered listed endangered species, so they they really are part of this post colonial post colonial imaginary that that uh, dominates the way in which our environmental laws will stop, but animal right uh, animal laws in particular um, are are drafted today. So so these are you know, the animals that we have in law are these very peculiar inventions of juridical minds that capture the the pathos and terror and love of humans for animals and for their parts. Um, And that is, I I find fascinating as literature or or as an artifact, but it shouldn't really be confused as being sort of real protection for animals themselves. So I think that the, when people imagine animal rights in the abstract, they're, they're thinking about something far more far-reaching and general than the law has traditionally offered in the way of rights. And, and they're imagining, I believe, emancipation for non-human animals, some degree thereof, maybe better lives, kindness and treatment, even standing in court. So this is admirable, of course, and I agree with the sentiment, um, but it's it's not, it's not what we see um, being played out in the law. And so here are some other problematic things about animal law. So the, the phrase animal rights presupposes this hierarchical idea of animals as being first beneath humans, subject to their dominion, and second, humans as being not animals. So humans as being not only above, but outside of animal life altogether, which again comes back to what I was saying about us needing to hold on to this idea of humanness in the in the wake of the the end of the rule of the church, um, and as that of that as being you know driven by this deep anxiety, and so we cannot really consider ourselves to be animals. Perhaps that distinction because that's essentially what's holding us together as an existential community at the moment, or holding some of us together. There are, of course, many communities who, who live otherwise, and, and that's what I'm really interested in finding more about. Uh, there's a wonderful scholar called Dinesh Wadawell who talks about the sovereign dominion of non-human life, particularly with regard to animal welfare laws that function, he says, not as a means to reduce the suffering of animals, but on the contrary, as a means of governing it. And, and this description he gives really neatly encapsulates for me the problem with animal laws in general, um, and animal welfare laws. So if we talk not just not just about animal rights laws, but animal welfare laws, which you think, well, surely must be good. Again, this tends to be, you know, a chicken has the right to live in a box of this size, to lay an egg once or twice a day, to be fed this kind of food. But a chicken does not have any access to the rights that we take to be absolutely fundamental, the right to life, the right to family life. Um, yeah, and it and it and it really it really boggles the mind when you think about what what the what the welfare we afford animals through law really entails. They are conditions of servitude um, and, and and the conditions of their exploitation. So so we we could ask the question differently. You know, how does law intersect with the ways in which our society invents, creates, manages animal life? I mean, that's a that's. Um, 
one way into to starting to think critically about animal law. And how does law affect this, the ontological, the ethical, the ceremonial relation between humans and animals? Um, so it seems as if you're suggesting, Eureka, that, that actually what animal rights um, or the, the formalization of animal rights in law sort of uh, looks like it's doing is protecting animals, but what it's doing is reinforcing human mastery in a different way. Yes, absolutely. To, to me, it does seem that way. And it's, um, it's dispiriting because, of course, um, I support all of the efforts that go into trying to make animal lives better. But working in public interest law, for instance, or campaigning for the increase in the, in the square meterage of, of, of the barn in which the pigs are shackled, it's it's so terribly depressing when you when you put that into a, a proper context when you think about what the pig might actually want or might need you know which is not to be separated from her young which is not to see her young being brutally <laughs> murdered as soon as they're of an age and and you know to not be 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 living in a barn and to not be being reared for bees and to not being used as a um, as a as a factory for the production of food for for humans who don't need that protein to survive and and so yeah it, it's quite dispiriting there are many other ways i think of approaching i wonder um, also whether whether one thing that you know this conversation around animal rights might help us think about is is the question of rights a bit more generally and sort of might offer a sort of interesting critical angle on rights by thinking about i suppose the the limitation of rights to thinking about humans as individuals, as discrete rational units, you know, rights being incredibly transactional, um, thinking about, as I say, individuals rather than communities, whether this kind of conversation that's going on in animal studies between sort of the rights tradition and sort of more um, progressive ways of thinking might sort of be, we might bring that back into these bigger conversations around rights. Absolutely. There's a there's a wonderful um, academic called Matthew Kalako, if anyone's interested, who's who's um, writing uh, really helpfully uh, on this on this topic. But um, I mean, one one thing that the philosopher Martin Heidegger said is that the animal is poor in world, meaning that non-humans couldn't pass any relation to speech or to death or to truth. These really important things. But, but I think that given that our existential taxonomies really denude our relationship to speech, to death, to truth, you know, a relationship that non-humans have perhaps actually better retained, it may be more accurate to say that the human is poor in world. And, and so yeah, I totally agree with you, Danielle, in, in that thinking critically about um, animal rights and animal law really does open up... Um, well, the problems with, that, with with discourses of human rights, but also the possibilities that, that that brings up to thinking about human communities and human as animal, human communities, to, you know, with, with some kind of relation to nature, which I think we have to try to strive for, given the the situation that we're in today with environment, you know, in this environmental catastrophe. 
I'm aware that we are getting quite short of time and I have a lot of questions from the audience that have come in. So I wonder if I could put some of those to our panel. Um, so question from David Hidalgo, who's at the University of Milan. Um, what about incommensurability and incompatibility among different human rights? Anyone want to take that on? I mean, I'll just say something perhaps. Um, I, I don't know if I would frame it as incommensurability. I'm sure there are some rights that are you know, deeply incommensurable with the fulfillment of other rights. But anytime you have a system of rights, uh, so meaning multiple rights, all of which you have to uh, respect, fulfill, observe, and these are reasonably demanding rights, as they are in the case of human rights, you're going to get resource competition. So, you know, the more you put into, you know, good policing, uh, you know, take away from money you could have put elsewhere, for instance, uh, into housing and healthcare, uh, et cetera. So there's no way to solve uh, these conflicts. Uh, and then it is just going to be a challenge, I think, for, for any government, even if we look at the you know, human rights obligations that, that states are bound to now to manage it all uh, and, and put it all in balance and manage it satisfactorily. So conflict is inevitable uh, in, in between, between rights and between even human rights. Uh, and I think that's just something you have to sort of roll with and, and you know, uh, make the best of as, as, a, as, a, as someone committed to human rights or a state committed to human rights in, in the to and fro of actual governance. Just, just to add to that, although I'm still, I'm so enamoured of the tardigrades, I want to get back to the tardigrades at some point. Um, um, but yeah, um, I, I, I think in terms of that incompatible and incommensurate, I think the problem is when states and political systems think it is a question of management, i.e. not a question of ethics, not a question of politics. And that seems to be where human rights really does seem to crash because it, it, becomes, it becomes a question of, of managing incompatible rights. And so, I mean, I find I get quite alarmed um, when rights are spoken of in that way. And the memory I had as both Eureka and you were talking, Adam, was um, the moment when uh, Adolf Eichmann says, who was, you know, as he, a self-described bureaucrat, although we do know he was quite a bit more than a self-described bureaucrat, but as an actual um, very committed anti-Semite um, and um, Nazi activist. But in within what he said um, was, you know, I'm a, I'm a very good administrator. I'm also not a not a crime. You know, I'm not a, a criminal. I believe in humanity. I was the one who reduced the number of people in the cattle trucks um, that were allowed uh, when, when I was in charge of transportation. So <laughs> that your analogy with with the the um, the cow. <laughs> Um, you know, thinking, well, thank you very much, but I'd rather you know, not be in the cattle truck at all. Um, struck clangingly and hope, hopefully, uh, hopefully awkwardly at, at that point. Um, Thanks, Lindsay. Um, another question. This one is from Bernadette Buckley, who's the convener of the MA in Art and Politics at Goldsmiths. Um, she's interested in the relationship between rights and moral sentiment. Um, so she's particularly interested in the enduring perceived correlation between rights, sympathy slash empathy and reflective concerns today. 
Um, my own interest, she says, is that these qualities of empathy and matters of concern are very much at the core of many art practices. Um, so does the panel have anything to say about this relationship between rights and art or activist practices? Can I take? <laughs> I think it was beautifully illustrated. I'm going to go back to the tardigrade <laughs> by Eureka telling that story because what she did was tell the story of another species and we were all captivated um, to, to the point where, I don't know, with empathy, certainly in terms of interest um, and that, yet, yeah, so of course, storytelling. Um, I'm very suspicious of empathy because it, it, if, you, if you look at the kind of language of moral sentiment as it came out in the 18th century and the language of empathy today, it is also a power relationship. It's very easy um, and it's very easy to give good feelings and much, more, much, much more difficult um, to give your taxes or withdraw from certain practices or give up some of your own rights. And I think, you know, in those um, people who criticised the neoliberalisation of, of rights and criticised um, the production of empathy within that, I think that's something that needs to be taken very seriously. Um, and I think, you know, I'd quite like us just to stop using the word empathy um, for, for a little while and find a new vocabulary for what it is when we imagine other lives in relationship to our own lives, our richer vocabulary. Having said all that, you know, you know, part of the argument I've been making for years is, um, and it's sort of kind of Kantian, is the imagination is absolutely crucial to the development of ideas around rights and ethical obligation. Um, partly, um, you know, in, in terms of judgment. I mean, the, the point about being good at art, I mean, bad art obviously doesn't create empathy, it just creates boredom. Um, the point about good art is it does give you positions on which to view the world that might not be available to you because your brain's too muddled and you're too tired or because you're not that particular artist, but become available to you through the work of, of art, which is then put um, in, in a place which is not just individual, that of individualism, but is that, that, that of a kind of public space. So, yes, absolutely. I think the imagination and, you know, um, the creative arts in particular have a crucial position. I mean, if you, if you, you know, if you, if you work with um, people who are doing human rights activism in countries which do not invest in the arts and humanities, that they will, you know, they will, those are the things that people will be asking for because they know there's a relationship between um, you know, the arts, humanities, and, 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 and rights. Um, and, and also, as I said before, anyone who, who is committed to rights should be very, very alarmed when you're, you know, if, if you're in a state or country where, um, um, name no names, um, arts and humanities departments are being reduced and people are being made redundant, hello goldsmiths, um, you ought to be very, very suspicious and very, very worried about that. So, yes, to imagination, yes, to the arts, um, but I want, uh, I, I really would like a, a, a more textured and, and granulated sense of what work the imagination and production of art, production of different forms of imagining um, can do in terms of, of our ethical obligations and imaginations of each other. Great, I think we've got time for one more. So this is from Beth Watts, who is a social policy academic at Harriet Watt. She uh, asks if commitment to slash belief in Oh, I've lost my page. Um, if commitment to or belief in human rights entails this leap of faith and optimism, what are the implications of the fact that some people are human rights sceptics? Don't we need to step away from a reliance on the idea of human rights as a primary discourse so we can build coalitions that are as wide as possible for our aims? Yeah, if I may, I think 
Uh, you're absolutely right. I'd agree with that. I think we need to dig deep and, and look at you know ancient stories. We need to look at old jurisprudence, minor histories, indigenous laws, other communities outside of the global north. We need to look at children's perspectives to collect really useful ideas about how we might then move on to, to live together as communities. Um, in, in it, We have to make a, a sort of quite dramatic break from the way that we have been living and talking about um, how we govern ourselves, because it's it's not it's 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 a broken system, isn't it? One final question, which I think builds on that quite nicely. This is from uh, Valentina Contreras, who's at the Global Initiative for Economic, Social and Cultural Rights in Chile. Uh, to what extent do you think that the human rights discourse can account for other subjectivities uh, different to the individual human, which are needed for the human to have human rights? I'm referring to the environment and biodiversity in particular. We've got two minutes to answer this one. I think it's a great question. It was also provoked um, by some of the things that Eureka was saying, but I was thinking there of, um, you know, the, the, the kind of truth when Marx talks about species being has been, you know, demonstrated in the past 18 months in what it, what it actually means to be one species among many in terms of you know, what, 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 what can happen on that. But then I, as soon as I get enamored about that idea, I, I sort of think there's something, again, it goes back to Adam's point about I know I'm certain that there's something like human rights is I don't really want to kind of construct a kind of epistemology or a rights-based rights -based system based on species being. I find that quite troubling, um, which is a roundabout way of saying I, I don't know, but it is the question we need to be asking now. Any other brief thoughts on this one from, from our other panellists? Just a small point that I don't think... Um... I don't think the idea of human rights or human dignity need to be in any way prejudicial against other animals. So when we speak about human rights, I think we're talking about the rights of humans. We speak about human dignity, we're speaking about the dignity of human beings. But there's nothing in that to you know that suggests that there might not be the rights of, of other animals or indeed of inanimate objects uh, or dignity of other animals and dignity of you know the world, the earth, mother earth, the universe. There's, so. I think it's just I hear sometimes people 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 seem to assume that the the idea of human rights is, is exclusionary to other animals. I don't think it has to be. I, I, sometimes it's used that way, but I don't think we need to assume that it that it always needs to be. I wish we had more time on that question because I think it's really interesting. Um, unfortunately, I think we have run out of time. Um, I'm so sorry if I didn't reach your questions. Thank you for all of the interesting questions we had. Thank you so much for coming along and thank you to our panellists. Do join us again for other forum events in future.